0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: to all you Metsian folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Metsian Podcast. There is a lot going on out there, and we're going to be monitoring the situation as we speak. Um, but let's let's get right into it, since there's a lot going on. I, I first want to introduce our guest for the evening. He's an author of a slew of books about uh, all the championship eras of the Mets, and, and that is Eric Sherman. And let's first introduce Eric. How are you doing tonight? Thanks for joining us.
2: I'm doing quite well. Thanks for having me on.
1: Of course. And let's go around the horn up in Connecticut is Rich Ferrago. What's going on, Rich?
0: Hey, Sam. Uh, you know, lots, the Mets seem
1: to go through these uh, ebbs and
0: ebbs and uh, peaks of, of information. I think we have some interesting, juicy stuff.
1: We do. We have some interesting, juicy stuff just as we're going live. And let's uh, uh, make a, a triangle back down to... Uh, Mike LeColon in Brooklyn. What's going on, Mike? How are you? Hello, Sam. Hello, Rich. Hello, Eric. Uh,
3: Glad to be speaking with you this evening. Can't wait to
1: get started talking baseball. And here I am uh, finishing the triangle in the island of Manhattan, and uh, we're going to get to it right away. Uh, Rich, you're the one who, when I said that, hey, looks like Bob Nightingale said this, you were like, but other people are saying that. And Bob Nightingale has an interesting history. So uh, what say you, Rich? Well,
0: as of moments ago, uh, uh,
1: like 10 minutes ago, it
0: seems that Bob Nightingale did break the story that the Mets had signed Bauer. And that was immediately shot down by a couple of other reporters, namely uh, Adisha Thosar of of Daily News and also Mark Feinsand. Uh, They said, no deal in place, no deal in place. And that's the the most uh, recent that I have on it is that at this minute it would appear that there's no deal in place. Um, One could argue that typically where there's smoke, there's fire. So, um, you know, so maybe they are getting close and maybe we will know something. We could know something before the podcast is over. But at this point, it -hmm. appears that the Mets
1: and Bauer are not in a deal. Sounds like they're not in a deal. And, you know, I had other people Uh, Messaging me that they were Uh, Eric what do you make of this
2: Well I do think It's down to just the Mets and the Dodgers At this point Um, You know baseball uh, Is not going through a normal Off season Uh, Teams really got hit uh, Last season I mean several Probably hundreds of millions of dollars Were lost and that might even be conservative uh, Because of the the Pandemic And I think in a normal year, Bauer would have been signed a month ago, at least. Uh, But now, you know, you you really have uh, the two richest franchises. Um, You know, the Yankees are probably in there as well. Um, But, you know, they seem to be going in a different direction, Uh, you know, to stay near or under the cap um, with some of the flyers that they've been taking out on some – formerly great pitchers that are recovering, but it would it would seem like the other two big, big dogs in the fight. Um, the the wealthy Mets and the wealthy Dodgers are the really the last two teams standing for Bauer. And um, I do think the Mets are going to get them. I, I just have a feeling um, that they're going all in this off season um, and they're going to build a team to win this year. And um, so I I think he's going to end up end up with the Mets now. I I personally wouldn't go more than two years, um, and I don't necessarily think Bauer should, be, because I just think that until baseball recovers from the financial uh, crisis that they're under right now because of the pa- pandemic, that I mean he has a, a, a year or two that are terrific. Um, you know he could go out and and get himself a much better deal in a year or two from now. But I do think the Mets are going to get him. It's probably going to be three years, I would imagine.
1: Mike, you know, if this isn't a done deal, uh, and let's say, hypothetically speaking, it was leaked by the Bauer side of things. His agent is Rachel Luba, who seems to be taking this uh, agenting thing to a whole nother level of, of modern stances. And attempting to possibly get more money for her client through the most modern way possible.
3: Well, that's the key word, the most modern way possible. You know, I'm accustomed to a different way of negotiations and doing business. She's young. Social media is like a third hand to a younger generation and they will utilize it to its, to its max. Uh, she earlier today tweeted, uh, You know, down to two, meaning that negotiations were down to the Dodgers and the Mets. It seems like the Mets are in the lead. Uh, The Dodgers are in a similar boat or situation as the Mets are insofar as contract extensions pending for other players. You know, so there's not a lot of wonton dollars being thrown around. Uh, Somebody's going to have to make a good business decision here. But, uh, you know, Rachel Luba, she's doing what's perhaps in the best interest of her client, or at least that's what she thinks, and she's building a nice little empire for herself. So, you know, who am I to question her methods and tactics? Uh, to this point, she seems to be doing very well, and her client seems to be happy
1: with her. So today, you know, Biden commented that the uh, the season may start late, maybe, you know, asking MLB to, to have that uh, to to have the season start in may. And and obviously this is also part of negotiations. Um, Eric, what is your feeling on that? You know, does that like kind of buy some of this entire, like two weeks spring training from now, Uh, are they not, if if they were to start late, would they start a little later giving, you know, the, the, all, all, everything going on right now, a little bit more time to breathe. Like what, what do you think?
2: Well, I, I do think the season's going to be delayed. Um, I don't know if they're going to go to 154 games, which they've been talking about. Uh, but I would be utterly shocked if spring training and the regular season started on time. Um, I do have um, an insider who is saying right now it's business as usual that the spring training games are going to start on time. As of now, as of today, uh, but everything's very much up in the air. Um, and that say, you know, like the broadcasters, for for example, um, you know, they're going to do the games remotely for the most part, um, at least in, in the beginning of spring training. The prudent thing to do here would be to, to, to delay spring training a month. Uh, start the season a month later so you allow for more people to get vaccinated. I mean, look at the spring training sites. Arizona, as of a few days ago anyway, was the worst state in terms of um, new COVID cases. Like, they're a hotbed. Uh, Florida's not much better. Um, you know, these are states that, um, <laughs> you know, they have a lot of elderly um, and, um, a lot of COVID case, cases. And so if, if you allow them an extra month, um, you know, to get more people vaccinated, um, and then you allow maybe, you know, 25 or 30% capacity in a stadium, um, that just makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there hasn't been a lot of sense throughout the country. You know, every state kind of does their own thing, you know, for baseball, They really need to step up here and do the right thing. Start the season on May 1st, um, you know, play double headers, um, you know, every couple of weeks and, um, you know, they can get through it and then play the world series in November. Um, That's what I think that they, they should do uh, because I don't think we're out of the woods with this thing yet by a long stretch and we won't be uh, April 1st.
1: Rich, it would kind of be a nice throwback, you know. Uh, have a nice 154 game schedule, a few doubleheaders, and uh, go into October's World Series.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I, I wrote a couple of pieces about this this week, and and basically, I, I get what Eric just said. You know, pushing it back a month makes sense. You get you can get the players vaccinated without necessarily jumping the line. If you if you do the math forward on this thing. If the J&J vaccine is out there in early March, then you know it, it's going to be 100 million doses within a, within a month or two, and you, it, it wouldn't inflame people if the players got vaccinated at that point, right? So that does make sense, and and like you said, you could have people vaccinated, more people, so you could actually have limited and maybe by the middle of the summer full capacity at games or something close to that. It, it does make logical sense. The problem is the proposal that was on the table was for 154 games of full pay. So initially people are like, well, players, what the hell? Why don't you accept that? But there were a lot of strings attached. The strings attached were, first thing you have to think about is you're compressing, so you're, you're only going a week later in the season. So you're playing 154 games in basically almost the same amount of time. So you're going to do some double header, and I'm sorry, three weeks less time. So you're going to play some double headers. You're going to have full travel. So if the Mets get rained out against the Dodgers, you know, in New York, are the Dodgers going to come back and hide this double header? What if the Mets have already been in L.A.? So you could end up in a situation where because you're shoehorning this together, the worst possible outcome is that teams play different numbers of games. The players push back on that because what if a team plays 148 games and somebody doesn't have as many home runs and that could affect that person in salary arbitrations. So they push back on that. But then the big one is that when the owners put this forward, they had, they wanted the DH and they wanted, um, uh, expanded playoffs and the players don't want, they don't want the expanded playoffs because they feel as though it's a disincentive for teams to spend, because if, you're, if you could make it in slightly over 500, why in the world would you spend, you know, millions upon millions on any particular player? So, um, it wasn't as clean as 154 games with full pay. There are a lot of other considerations. And then, you know, Biden today coming out and saying he's asking Major League Baseball to, to, you know, back off for a month. It's hard, like I said, it's hard to argue the logic behind it. But there are other things that you have to think about. And I think that, and I'll leave it at this, the travesty of the whole thing is that tomorrow is February 5th. We're three, three hours and 45 minutes from February 5th. Camps are supposed to open on the 17th, which is 12 days later, and we don't know this. I mean, and we may not know until, what are they going to do, February 15th, tell people, oh, we were kidding. You know, don't, don't, don't go to spring training, wait a month. They've got to get their, their stuff together here. They really do. And they've got to figure out the expanded playoffs, the DH. Can you imagine we're so close to going to camp and we don't know the rules of the game for the national league? Let that sink in for a minute. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's frustrating, you know, and I'll leave it at this final thing. Baseball wants to know why it's now the third most popular sport. Yes. I know revenues are up, but revenues are up from a declining base. The base of fans is shrinking and this is the kind of crap that's behind it. This constant bickering, they look like a bunch of buffoons. They can't figure out the rules of the game. I don't know. It's frustrating.
1: You know, Mike, basically they took a week away when they they removed uh, eight games from the schedule. Uh, I'm sorry, when they added eight games from the schedule. Um, do you, you know, obviously they needed at the time to uh, correct for expansion, uh, but... You know, right now it's so interestingly nuanced that it's something that those, you know, the agents of baseball at the time just couldn't even fathom when thinking about this kind of stuff.
3: Well, necessity is the mother of all invention. Expansion made them expand the season to 162 games. Uh, This is an unsimilar situation where Major League Baseball is just acting them to act. X amount of games from the season, uh, for no other reason than monetary. It'd be nice if both sides could exercise a little bit of pragmatism and work out a deal. Uh, but, you know, rich throughout the word logic, and you know, Major League Baseball logic and the recent chain of events indicates that logic is the farthest uh, ingredient to this recipe. I liken. Negotiations between MLB and the union, Sam, I told you this, to a 12 round heavyweight title fight. And this is January, round one. And right now they're just pawing at each other and filling each other out. Ultimately, this is going to culminate in December. And one side or the other, MLB or the union, is going to raise the CBA belt in victory if you know what I mean. So I don't expect anything really to go smoothly in the near future throughout the season and leading up to December and negotiations for a new collective bargaining agreement. Call me contrarian, uh, but history tells us that these sides will not agree. And like their history together, they'll wait to the very last second to hammer out a deal. If not, they'll go into overtime. But as Eric also said, excuse me, uh, this is a very uncommon off-season, more so this year than last. Uh, We were, you know, America, I mean to say, was still in the, entering the beginning stages of this COVID epidemic back in February of 2020. Uh, We've been through a full year of this now, if not more, depending on your calendar, going back to what. What Rich said: the fact that they don't have their house in order, the National League teams are are are, are still being uh, made to wait for regulation to come down for Major League Baseball on DH, etc. Uh, it's it's a mess. It's a mess.
1: And you know, Mike, there was one part of that you got wrong, and you said that uh, during the heavyweight bout, this is January, but but you know it's February. And oh, right, is right. Because so today is your birthday. Two. There you go. Today is your birthday, uh, sir, so you should Actually, certainly be. Well, know that's that why, why ever... my wife calls me the
3: option minded <laughs> professor. So here we are. We're in round two, and yes, today is my birthday.
1: <laughs> Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you.
3: Thank you kindly.
1: Well, uh, I think that's a good way uh, to segue. Uh, um, I. Before we get into a, a little bit more modern talk, I just wanted to, to loop back over to our guest and give him a, some time to shine uh, Eric Sherman, uh, what we usually do if there weren't so much going on, uh, we would uh, ask you for your shameless plug up front so uh, before we get into kind of your your background uh, we just want you to shamelessly plug away everything you've written
2: <laughs> Well, that's nice of you.
1: Um... I I have um,
2: my seventh book. It's coming out on March. I'm sorry. It's yes. It is now March first. Uh, two two sides of glory: uh, the 1986 Boston Red Sox in their own words. And um, so it's basically the flip side to a book I wrote uh, four years ago: uh, Kings of Queens: Life Beyond Baseball with the '86 Mets. Where, and in both cases, what I did, I traveled around the country um, interviewing the key and more intriguing players uh, from the two ball clubs. Um, and with the bets, as you can imagine, uh, you know, the, the stories that I did with Dykstra and Gooden and Strawberry um, and Keith Hernandez, you know, of course, you know, we know their stories both on and off the field. Um, but I also went after less reported stories that are oftentimes uh, even more intriguing, like with Ed Hearn and Danny Heap. Um, so with the Red Sox, I basically did the same thing. I, uh, I traveled, I crisscrossed the country, and I you know, met with Roger Clemens and Oil Can Boyd and Bruce Hurst. And, um, but some of the more intriguing stories, um, I really got to know Bill Buckner well through a um, a book I wrote with Mookie Wilson, um, and so he's the lead chapter in the book, and I think it's probably the most compelling story of the book because uh, it was his last major interview, where he he really got into, um, you know how how much it hurt him and his family in the aftermath. Of his era in Game Six. I mean, this was a guy that had 2,715 hits, uh, a batting title, and played across four decades. And 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 people just tend to go back to that era. Uh, but every story was great in 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 its own way. I mean, Rich Gedman was so emotional, as was Bruce Hurst. Um, so that's just a little taste of it. And uh, you know, so it's it's a book that in many ways. Is, is more intriguing than the 86 Mets book because it's, it's a story about how the near-miss affected the 86 Red Sox careers and the rest of their life. Um, so there's that. And you touched on before that I, I had written a book uh, along with Art Shamsky, uh, After the Miracle, uh, The Lasting Brotherhood of the 69 Mets. And that was a story really it's it's two stories in one book um we got together some of tom tom siever's closest friends and teammates from the 69 nets uh art and i did uh we got Jer- jerry kuzman uh bud harrelson and ron swoboda uh to to fly into san francisco airport we all con- con- converged on the airport and we really spent um a day with Tom. It was the last time that that Tom was going to be with these teammates that he had such a strong bond with, you know, the Miracle Mets of 69. And it was just a magical day. You know, we toured his vineyard, the Sievers vineyard, and then had had lunch afterwards. And, And we stood in the parking lot for about an hour. Nobody wanted to leave because they knew that this was it. Um, so we made a little bit of history, I think, you know, in in doing the book, besides reporting on history, we made a little. Uh, and then in the middle of the book, the other part of the story was we interviewed every player and anybody that had anything to do with the 69 Mets, uh, including the grounds crew, the the players' wives, um, uh, Ed, Ed Charles before he pa- passed away. Uh, which which was an incredible afternoon that we spent spent with him. Um, we discovered history, like Al Weiss used a souvenir bat to have his, um, you know, to win, I think it was the Babe Ruth Award in the 69 series. Don Quindetta won, won the MVP, but there were two awards give, given out. And how Jerry Kuzman admitted after all these years that he did, in fact, rub the shoe polish ball on his spike Um, after Gil Hodges told him to do so. So, um, you know, you uncover history, um, and they were very open to us, and um, it's that's a book that's, you know, you put together a book like After the Miracle, and you're like, how am I going to outdo that? Uh, It it just had so many elements, and Art, Art Chamsky and I are very proud of it.
1: it it's amazing uh, all the things you've done uh from a, a a author you know from the authorship if you will um and and before i go around the horn about that i'd like to first have you deliver to us and uh our audience um your baseball background your general background you know uh, your your all of your roots
2: okay well um I grew up in Northern New Jersey in a town called Westwood, which um, I know a lot of your listeners um, here in Mets country probably have heard of towns like Paramus and Ridgewood. Well, I grew up in that part of New Jersey in Bergen County. And um, I started writing sports when I was 14 years old, getting paid for it. Um, I, it started, I, 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 I want to write a story about our school softball team in middle school that had won a championship. So I, I wrote for the school paper. I was sports editor, but I thought it deserved more publicity since we won a championship. So I took my bike into the middle of town and knocked on the door and asked for the editor. And, um, and she liked the story so much that she asked me if I would like to write a column every week. Uh, on high school sports, since I was going into high school, um, so that 's what i did and and um, went to Emerson College in Boston, uh, where I played baseball for four years and um, um, I remember a professor telling me that there 's nothing older than yesterday 's newspaper, um, but books last forever, so that kind of got me on the book front you know where so my first book. Um, I wrote with Glenn Burke, who was dying of AIDS. He was, he used to play with the Dodgers and the A's and he was actually the first major leaguer to come out of the closet. Um, and he played in the late seventies uh, and 1980 for the A's. And uh, he was literally blackballed from baseball um, when he came out. Uh, he, he was a terrific young player. One of the Dodgers brightest young players players, and they churned out Rookies of the Year every year, so I wrote a, that was my first book, and all these years later, that that, that was written in 1995, and all these years later, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, the actress who's also a producer now, um, she's going to make a movie about it, and um, so I know that's being worked on through Amazon Studios, and I'm not quite sure of any more details at this point, but she has the option on it, And um, so um, Glenn Glenn Burke invented the high five. That was another claim to fame. And then, you know, then real and then real, real, real quickly, uh, I I wrote a book with Steve Blast, who used to pitch for the Pirates, uh, of which Steve Blast's disease is named after. Uh, He had the first case of the yips that was really um, blown up in, in baseball because he was such a terrific pitcher in the world series and the all-star games. And then the next year he had the yips and he never recovered from it. Um, Went on to become one of the iconic Pittsburgh pirates broadcasters for for 33, 34 years. He just retired uh, a year or so ago. Uh, Then I did a book with Mookie Wilson, uh, which made the New York times bestseller list.
1: Uh, And
2: that led to Kings of Queens uh, on the 86 Mets and, Davy Johnson loved that book so much that he said, you're my guy to do my autobiography. And so I did Davy's autobiography encompassing his incredible career in, 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 baseball. And, and then after that, after the miracle, um, and, uh, and I, I don't think I'm leaving any out. I think that's about it. Then the next one. Oh, well then, um, the one coming out this spring, uh, Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox in their own words, which um, can be pre ordered now. Um, but the book won't be released um, until, actually, it, it is April 1st. I just checked while we were on the air. And that's my story. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs>
1: well, oh, perfect. Excellent. Uh, um, and we're going to go around the horn for that story. And first to Rich Spirago with any questions. Well, naturally, actually Eric,
0: you know, where my head goes is two places you know, the Davy Johnson book. I, 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 as I mentioned to you before I went on, I have the book, um, and I need to dive into it. Uh, but I, I'd like to talk to you about your, your meeting with Siever with the 69 methods. you could probably see that question coming a mile away. Um, what? How do you? How would you describe the dynamic? I mean, you. It was pretty recently, so obviously, you know, Tom was nearing the end, and um, was uh, what was the, what were the conversations like? Were they more about their friendships or more about you know specific memories of the '69 team? Uh, more off the field stuff, more on the field stuff. Just what was that like being with those guys,
2: especially Seaver? Well, you know, I'm I'm in my office now, and I'm actually looking at the picture that was taken while we were ha- having lunch. And um, you know, I I know Tom was really interested to find out what everyone was up to, but the I mean, the vast majority of the con- conversation was dominated by their memories, um, and it was like no time had passed for these guys. I mean, I could really tell I, it. Um, you know, so it took place in the spring of 2017. Um, you know, books usually come out a couple of years after you're done doing the research and most of the writing. Um, publishers will sit on a book for a year um, before it's released. So, Tom physically was fine. Um, I, you know, we were out on his vineyard walking around for three hours. Um, and his recall was really good, um, as as was all the guys, you know. And Buddy Harrelson was at the beginnings of his Alzheimer's. It's gotten much worse. Um, so, but, you know, in fact, he was much further along in his Alzheimer's than with Tom. You know, Tom uh, was suffering from Lyme disease, which which robbed him – of some of his short-term memory. So I'll give you a quick example. So um, we're having lunch after being on Tom's Vineyard, and Tom's talking away about, you know, his 300th win or or the near-perfect game, and then I'm sitting between him and Buddy, and and Tom turns to me and he goes, um, have you ever seen my vineyard? You now, he, he was very enthusiastic about it. He loved his vineyard. I mean, he was he was obsessed with his vineyard probably as much as he was about pitching. And, you know, and here, here it was, I mean, we had just been on his vineyard maybe an hour before and he didn't remember that, you know, that, that I was out on the vineyard with him. And, you know, i I was, I was talking with him for a couple of hours and, and, you know, I, I don't mean for that to come across any other way than just to describe his state. You know, so his short-term memory was uh, not in a good place at that point. But his recall for things that happened, you know, 30, 40, 50 years before was really good. And the conversations that, you know, we had, um, I mean, it was incredible. it I mean, for me personally, it was a surreal experience right from the time that we met Jerry Kuzman and Rocky Swoboda at at the airport, and you know I rented a big van, and uh, I've got Jerry Kuzman's riding shotgun while I'm driving, and and I have you know Art Chamsky and Buddy Harrelson and Ron Swoboda in the back, and and um, but those guys, I mean they're they're terrific. They made me feel like one of them. We got to the motel, and we all converged in in Jerry's room, and. And, um, you know, he's serving us, um, diet Coke and vodka, uh, kind of a unique, uh, combination. We ordered fried chicken and I mean, it it was like we were in the minor leagues or something like that. And, and I had to interview Jerry for a while and the other guys were kind of sitting around and, and, um, and joining in the conversation and, uh, it was great. Uh, But then seeing Tom the next day, which we weren't sure if we were going to be able to do after all that effort in getting everybody out there, we just weren't sure because he was having good days and bad days. Um, Nancy Seaver, uh, Tom's wife, um, was keeping Art informed on how he was feeling. And and we were lucky. I mean, Tom Tom was in great shape that morning. Um, It was a Saturday morning and, beautiful perfect day and um it was just wonderful um and i think it's a day that we all value immensely and uh so it really was the heart of the book after the miracle and uh i was just so glad to get those teammates together one last time
0: that's a great story thanks for sharing
2: sure my pleasure yeah it's
1: beautiful it's absolutely beautiful mike
3: well I for one can't wait to get my hands on two sides of glory uh well done by you it's not often that authors and and and, this and the like go after or seek the story or the perspectives of the loser uh they always get overshadowed and and how the Red sox got to the eighty six world, world series is uh is a story in in itself uh not to mention the buried uh, players on that roster, stemming from the last World Series appearance in '75, uh, that you know were still on the team. Uh, some guys that came along the way and became veterans, like the Roger Clemens and and uh, Wade Boggs, and uh, just an incredible. I'm a I'm a little, I'm somewhat of a closet Red Sox fan, uh, and that happened way back in the '70s before interleague play. Uh, my father was a Yankee fan, so I naturally clinged to the Red Sox. And <laughs> my childhood, you know, there was nothing more prominent to me than Mets, Yankees, and Red Sox baseball. Everything else was secondary. So, oh, by the way, 86, no conflict. I'm a Met fan. Just in case anybody's <laughs> interested. No conflict well, at all. The, uh,
2: well, you know, you, you know uh, one, one of the things that you mentioned about, you know, the – players from the 75 team that were on the 86 team, Jim, Jim Rice and Dwight Evans. I mean, one of the things I, I, I left out Dwight, Dwight Evans played almost his entire career with, with two sons that, 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 that battled uh, a form of, uh, well, it's commonly known as elephant man's. They both actually recently died uh, in their forties. And my interview with Dwight was delayed for a few months because one of them, he didn't think was going to make it at the time. And, and, um, but I mean, Dwight Evans played almost his entire career, um, you know, leaving hospitals and going to the ballpark and then going right back to the hospital after games and having sleepless nights. And this is a guy that I think I have, a I have a feeling this guy might make the hall of fame through the veterans uh, committee So that chapter with Dwight, um, I'm very proud of as well. Um, But no, thank you for saying that about the 86 Red Sox book, Two Two Sides of Glory, Um, because it it isn't just about the near miss, but it's about a team that had the highest of highs just less than two weeks before the way that they came back against the Angels like they did, which was a miracle, and then had – Basically, what, ha- what what they did to the Angels happened to them. Um, I don't think there's ever been a story like that in the history of baseball, and and that's
3: why I really wanted to take a deeper dive into it. For that one, uh, my last question, uh, I remember Glenn Burke as a player. I remember him with Oakland. Uh, he spent the eighty season in the Pacific Coast League. He did not play for Billy Martin. Uh, but uh, I would ask you, in writing that book and, and, and doing your research and, and everything of the like, uh, is there an instance that you might perhaps be able to share with us that or when society may have lashed out at him? Because as you say, he was out of baseball uh, by the age of 26. His career did not last long. As you say, he got blackballed from the game.
2: Yeah, so what happened was, uh, so he he was with the Dodgers, Um, He was their top prospect um, after a parade of rookie of the years were coming out of the Dodgers system. And um, I mean, he was a five tool player. His numbers with the Dodgers were somewhat muted because, you know, the Dodgers knew that he, he was gay. In fact, Tommy Lasorda's son was gay and 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 once they became close friends and would hang out together, that's when the Dodgers soured on them. The Dodgers at the time, in the late 70s, had a pristine image that they were trying to uh, portray to their fans. I mean, you have to understand, it was a different time than it is today. Um, I mean, gay rights um, and gay norms in this country have just come a tremendous way. I mean, it's, you can't even compare. But back then, uh, you know, the Dodgers didn't want it be, to be known that they had a gay center fielder. And so uh, he didn't get a lot of play, playing time. And, you know, young players need to be out there to get com- comfortable. Um, but once he started befriending um, Spunky Lasorda, Tommy's son um, the front office approached him and they said look we'd like you to get married and, and we'll give you a bonus basically equal to his salary <laughs> and and so Glenn said you mean marry a woman and uh, you know he wasn't going to do that he wasn't going to have that type of beard it wouldn't be fair to the woman that he would be marrying um, so they shipped him off to the o- Oakland A's and the first or second day of spring training, Bill, Billy Martin is going around uh, the club introducing guys, and according to a couple, couple of the A's and, and Glenn, um, he said, uh, "This is Glenn Burke, um, and he's a faggot," you know. And it it really to say that it, it created a, an awful work atmosphere for Glenn is an understatement and um, so he was shipped to the miners um had had an injury, and uh tried to make come come back, but he was just so soured on baseball by that point um and really, you know, like the money wasn't in the game like it is today um I think he was making maybe sixty thousand a year, and it's you know, so I think it was a lot easier in a sense for him to walk away. But, um, but he went into two very difficult situations, you know, first with the Dodgers and, and, you know, at first he got along great with Tommy Lasorda. Um, the players absolutely loved Glenn. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of them since, and, uh, they said Glenn was the life of the clubhouse and they loved him. Um, and they were really disappointed when he got traded at such a young age.
1: Thank you, Mike. Um, Yeah. You know, and I think this is a good segue Eric uh, to the Mickey Calloway stuff uh, just because I think that homophobia and the standard way of, I guess that, that straight male kind of attitude that has basically, gone through baseball for years and years and years is kind of uh, coming to a reckoning. Um, we're going to get to the extension talk as well, but I, I just wanted to, you know, who really wants to talk about this, but uh, I'll, I'll first go to you, Rich, with this, that Mickey Callaway obviously got accused of sexual assault and sexual harassment, which I don't know if it was assault, actually. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it might have been uh, un answered and unwanted advances. Correct. Yeah, right. Well, he, he was
0: of that. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Sam.
1: No, I was just going to say that this unfortunately continues the conversation we had to have with Jared Porter. Um, and, you know, uh, as Mike was talking to me today, uh, that uh, Sandy Alderson's come into question for his hiring practices because of this. Um, obviously I think that everybody reacts very quickly, very, uh, big, bigly, uh, excuse me for the, uh, the parlances of our time. But, um, uh, I, I, I think that at the same time, like, like this is people trying to every time this happens, make sure the point gets across that something needs to be done. Now I think with Sandy Alderson, Rich, uh, I think he's done, and I think he's done a job at least, uh, you know, however you want to judge it, of saying, admitting faults, and and saying that we need to, you know, change our practices going forward. Uh, so, what do you think about this entire situation, and what can baseball do as quickly as possible, basically?
0: Well. About the the Sandy Alderson situation with the Mets, I mean, the question is always going to come down to who knew what and when. And we don't know that at this point. If you look at Mickey Calloway in in a box, in a vacuum, what you hear, and we've all heard it, is that it was the worst kept secret in baseball. I'm not making that up. That's a term that's been out there. Everybody's seen it, right? So, okay. So, was Sandy aware of that when he was going through the interview process, Mickey Calloway and, and choose to turn a blind eye to it. Maybe, maybe not. May, you know, it's the worst kept secret of baseball. Did that secret make its way to Sandy Alderson and Jeff Wilpon, or not? At this point, I, I certainly don't know. I haven't heard anybody say definitively that yes, Sandy Alderson was advised and chose to ignore it. Uh, we haven't heard that. So, it's hard to condemn anybody when you don't know what they knew and when. Um, and so the Jared Porter thing, same thing, right? Did they know about this stuff and and choose to look the other way? I don't know. Um, uh, you, you just, there's no way of knowing, uh, that's what, that's when the rubber will hit the road. When someday it comes out that if it ever comes out, I should say that, um, hey, the Mets knew about both Callaway and Porter and figured, oh, you know, we can keep this under the rug. Well, then that, that's one conversation. If after time goes by, it's it sort of comes out that, well, they really didn't know. We, we have no way of knowing if they knew. Well, then you have to give them the benefit of the doubt there. It, it, that If you can't say they knew, then you, you can't, you know, condemn them and hold them accountable for their hiring practices. The other thing that's come out, um, and hopefully all teams learn from it, is, Have some get some female perspectives, you know, talk to some reporters, talk to women in the game in whatever capacity and say, is there anything we should be concerned about with this person? You know, that that has really been a suggestion. And I think it's a good one. I don't think you change the culture of baseball by reactively going out and hiring a bunch of women. I think that's very transparent and very silly. I think women would see right through it. You're not doing females any favors by reactively hiring a bunch, you know, as tokens. I think you have to you have to just change the systemic process. Get opinions, you know, do a better job. Like the Mets are saying they're going to enhance their hiring practices. All teams should be doing that. They should be enhancing their hiring practices, talking to more people, asking these specific questions whether of men or women. Hey, you know, we're about to hire this person. Um, ask, ask that exact question. You know, are there any conduct issues we should know about with this person? Don't just ask, does the person know about the spin rate on the curveball? That's what's going to change things. Not, you know, going out and hiring a few people that, that, to me, that's actually worse. That that's just token. And that's just worse. Change, you know, the system has to change, um, and it's not going to happen overnight. You know, you're not going to see a systemic change and and, and the resulting, you know, influx of, of females in higher positions. It's going to take time. And you have to be prepared for that. You're breaking down a, an old boy institution that's existed for 150 years. And, and it's going to take time. But as long as you're putting the, the processes in place, okay, I think that's what you do, as opposed to reactively, you know, running out and making a bunch of token hires.
1: I mean, speaking of old boys, uh, Jeff Wilpon and Eric, I, I'm you know we we haven't ever talked to you about the Wilpons, and now that they're gone, it uh, might as well start now. So, you know, Jeff Wilpon, of course, was accused of sexual harassment not not exactly harassment, but of being extremely inappropriate in the workplace towards a woman. And is there just like a level of naivete? Uh, that you can't let the, let men who think it's okay to just make those stupid jokes get away with?
2: Well, I think, you know, I'm certainly not going to make any excuses for Jeff Wilpon. Um, but I will say that a lot of these guys, you know, they're, they're middle age uh, or a little older than the middle age. And what, What passed um, 30 years ago no longer does today, and um, they need some serious sensitivity training um, to catch up to the times. Um, But I don't know. You know, Alderson, I I know he did a nice job in Oakland, but, but then again, you know, they had a lot of steroid guys out there. I think, you know, La Russa uh, benefited greatly from that also. Um, Not that La Russa wasn't a good manager, but, you know, you you just have. um, Alderson, I mean, did he really do a great job the first time around with the Mets? I was shocked they brought him back. I, you know, and he's, he just comes across as somewhat pompous, you know, I, I know that a number of the 86 Mets and some of the for, former Mets, they just don't feel like Alderson or the Wilpons embraced their past. Um, and, and I mean, that's a whole other show probably, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, does, does it shock me that Alderson didn't do more due diligence in the hiring process and ask the right questions and, and, and interview, you know, a few women before hiring a general manager or a manager. I, I can't say it does. I, I, I think a part of it is that he's a product of his time. Um, and also, um, you know, he should have cared more, you know, especially today. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even just a matter of doing the right thing, but it's to protect yourself. Um, from, from, from the law, you know, like we have laws in place now. Um, So it's, it's very disappointing. And, and I think it's really cast somewhat of a shadow on what so far has been a really exciting postseason for Mets fans. I think the most exciting uh, postseason since the early 80s.
1: I mean, that certainly is what it feels like. And when it comes to Sandy, I don't know. I, I, I'm a fan of Sandy, Mike. And I think that he was very uh, uh, restricted by the Wilpons uh, to completely, you know, he got them to the World Series under the Wilpons type of, of way. Now,
3: uh,
1: at the same time, in terms of Mickey Calloway, I think all the points were, were made correctly in terms of, of uh, you know, like we we just don't know basically, um, but I I still other than that and you know Sandy was very excited about hiring Mickey if you remember, but I I still think that he generally did a good job and it was willpon way of things that kind of thwarted what could have been.
2: Well, I I think the success that the Mets had. Um, around 2015 and 2016. I, I mean, I think it was more a byproduct of so many losing years and getting high draft picks. I mean, they were absolutely stacked in their minor league system. Um, and, I, you know, and the guy that gets lost in all this is Wally Backman. I mean, these, these young Mets that came up through the system would, would run through a wall for Wally Backman, who was a terrific AAA manager in Las Vegas. And he had a hand in the development of, I think, 13 or 14 of the 2015 Mets. And he gets lost in this. And, you know, Alderson gets a lot of credit. Um, He wrote a book, um, I guess, six or seven years ago, Um, and he was, you know, the Mets were a 500 team. I, I, I I don't know. I I mean, I, I know Sandy's well-respected in the game, but to me, I mean, uh, I mean, is he really, you know, this terrific baseball executive for the Mets anyway? I mean, obviously he had success in Oakland, um, but he's been here a long time. You know, and, uh, you, you know, they had an awful lot of talent, in, young talent in 2015 with a mix of veterans. And uh, I think they should have done more with that team. And uh, I would have loved to to have seen them hire Wally Backman um, and just given him a shot. I mean, just a pure baseball guy uh, instead of, you know, these managers are always looking through um, – you know, a, a book, you know, to, you know, just managing almost by a cop, a pocket computer, it seemed like. Um, I would have liked to have seen that happen and uh, just to see what the results
1: would have been. I mean, Mike, you're not going to find a bigger Wally fan than me. I was Wally ball all the way. Um, uh, but I, I think that, you know, and I was saying this to you, Mike, that this is going to become the Mets are going to become Sandy Alderson's legacy. Forget about Oakland. Forget about Moneyball. He, because of how long he will end up being here, and Steve Cohen basically brought him in to do what he could have done potentially with the Wilpons uh, with a better chain of command. Um, that's personally what I think, but. I, I, I do think one way or another, for better or worse, it will become Sandy Alderson's baseball legacy. Hmm. Well, Rich, if you remember, I questioned the rush to
3: hire Sandy Alderson initially when Stephen Cohen purchased the team. I was wondering why he had done so so quickly instead of waiting and perhaps playing the field. But that's neither here nor there. Uh rightly or wrongly, Sam, Sandy Alderson is caught up. He's ensnared current dilemma uh, stemming from Jared Porter and Mickey Calloway. Organizations need to be proactive, and they always need to self-analyze. And this is what faces Sandy Alderson presently. Uh, again, he's going to be ensnared in this people are going to attach these incidences to Sandy Alderson. So you have to question, or maybe he has to question, is his hiring process so so comprehensively incompetent or blindly self-serving? And how do you improve going forward? Now, insofar as Women in the media having an outlet to report incidences like this without fear of retribution. I think leaving this up to individual teams to police this kind of behavior is inadequate. I think this needs to be handled at the Major League Baseball level. A hotline where somebody can call on the drop of you know, a dime and say, look, this is what happened three minutes ago. And baseball calls the organization to say, yo, this is what, this is what's up. I demand you uh, reconcile this immediately. But uh, I'd hesitate to put the responsibility of policing these behaviors in respective organizational hands. This is a Major League Baseball problem and a societal problem. But if Major League Baseball wants to nip this in the bud, Well, they need to handle this because this is interpersonal relationships, not just between male and female, but between athlete, media. There's a lot of executives. There's a lot of different titles involved here. So uh, I think it's Major League Baseball's job to to step in and uh, institute uh, an outlet, a safe outlet, for reporting instances like this, because all too often it's the woman who gets victimized when she complains or reports an incident that may have occurred. Uh, of course, things need to elevate to that status first. Look, we've already instances now where the victims were hesitant to come out. With their stories, and that needs to stop. No one should be hesitant. No one should be fearful to report an an incident that happened to them. Uh, so again, Sam, I'll I'll just say that this is Major League Baseball's problem, they they're the ones who need to institute uh, a mechanism for, uh or an outlet, a safe outlet, uh, for people to report this kind of behavior.
1: I think that's uh, a very interesting take. Um, I'm going to go around the room. Uh, Rich, if you want to follow up on that, because I think that's exactly what does need to happen.
0: No, I, I agree.
1: Um,
0: I don't have much to add on that. I think um, that is where we are, and that is what needs to happen. You know, so I, I'd send it over to uh, to Eric. I, I don't have much to add.
2: No, I think a major league hotline, uh, I think that's the way to go. I think that's a great suggestion um it's one I haven't heard um but i think I think it's a great start at least yeah uh,
1: there's there's i mean it you know there's not one solution, and that's the thing this entire thing is completely nuanced we have to keep having the conversation about it um and and hopefully at least if not perfected, it'll start to shift. So that's basically, and I think Major League Baseball, I don't want to say they're the right people for the job. They have a lot of work to do with the way they operate. Um, But it has to be at every, it has to be at the organizational level. But Mike brings up a good point that this this is really institutional, not just on the complete societal level, but baseball as well. Mike, if you want to finish up with that specific point, and then we can go into our next round no i would be
3: I would just be redundant. Times are changing, and the best action you can take is again being uh proactive and and self analysis how How well am I doing? Can I do better? What should I do better and Sandy Oldson got caught. When he was asked, well, did you uh, consult with a with a woman in this matter? And he got caught, and he said no. So there's food for
1: thought. Exactly. It, um, it is nine o'clock. You've been listening to a Metsian podcast, and uh, I, we want to finish a little bit with uh, the modern Mets before we go uh, dig deep into the 1972 team, and I just wanted to bring up the extensions and the possibilities for them. And I'll go over to you first, Rich. Um, today I read from Anthony DiComo of MLB.com following the Mets uh, that it's 8 out of 10 for Lindor, but 5 out of 10 for Scott, For I was about to say, for Scott Forrest. And that's basically the point. Michael Conforto was represented by Scott Boris, And so he puts it at basically 50-50 uh, with the, basically the, Scott for caveat
0: in terms of an extension.
1: Yes, exactly. If you want so, to yeah, go I, ahead with the both Lindor and Conforta.
0: Well, the only thing to say to that is at some point, the math catches you right. Um, from what I understand, the Mets are roughly thirty couple 32 million under the luxury tax right now after the match trade. So, okay. um, You bring in Bauer, if that happens and we, I still don't have any word that it has. Uh, It's going to be really close to that. It's going to put them right on the borderline. So now, okay. um, Maybe you could offload some salary to get, you know, to get comfortably under, maybe there's a couple more players you could bring in, you know, to, to be right at the threshold there, but now you're looking out to 2022 and what do you do? Well, um what I'm hearing is the Bauer contract that was rumored had a one year opt out for Bauer after, so maybe he does come back. Maybe he loves New York, right? And so right there you have thirty plus million committed. You think you have to you absolutely have to extend Lindor or trading a, a young talent like Jimenez makes no sense. I mean you have to you have to extend Lindor. Okay, fine. Um you have other you know, you have the rest of the team. You have the rest of the payroll. You have people who go up in arbitration. And then you've got the big kahuna, the 800-pound gorilla. You've got homegrown Michael Conforto, who I think is a legitimate superstar. Um, I think he crossed the threshold into that this past season. And what, do you, what are you going to do there? I mean, at, at some point, you know, you can't sign everybody to a $25-plus plus million contract a year. You certainly can't do that. Um, how do they approach this? You know, a couple of years down the line, you're going to have guys like Pete Alonzo and Dom Smith hitting arbitration. Their salary are going to go up. You've got the Grom, uh, who's coming at a discount right now. Um, I think, in summary, Sam, I think they have a lot of thinking to do, you know. Um, it's great that they're bringing all these guys, and but but if you, I'll just leave it with what I started with to sign Lindor long term to justify that trade you have to as far as I'm concerned you have to sign Conforto long term because he's a superstar where's where where are going to make up the room you know they said they would go over the cap under the right circumstances but I don't think they're going to enter any season 50 million over the cap I when I hear them say they'll go over the cap under the right circumstances what I think I hear is if they have to bring in a player at the deadline to get over the top they'll do it I don't think they're really looking to you know, start a season with a $250 million payroll. I, I don't really see that being the case. So it will be interesting to see how they play this, but they will have some difficult decisions to make.
1: It, it's fascinating. Just thinking about uh, all of this uh, um, quick, Eric, uh, let's go around the horn, Eric and Mike last,
2: Oh, um, in terms of the extension to Lindor, yeah, I, I mean to justify that deal, yeah, I I couldn't agree more, um, and I think that they'll get it done. Um, and um, Conforto, I don't think the guy. I mean, he's he's a terrific player with great talent, and I don't think we've seen his best season yet. I you know I think once he puts it all together. I mean he's a potential batting champion uh who could hit 25 home runs. Um so they've got to wrap him up too. Um uh you know you're right. I mean you know, like you know you can't sign everyone for 25 million a year. Um but I do think that with Lindor he's so important. He's in the prime of his career. He's probably the biggest acquisition that they've made. Um, since Gary Carter, I would say, uh, only in Lindor's case, he is more upside for a longer period of time. Um, so, they're going to have to pick and choose. Um, you know, they have some time with the Alonzos of the world, but, um, uh, you know, they're lucky that they have an owner now that's worth $14 billion and and he, he can afford to make a, a mistake or two. <laughs> so, uh I I like where the Mets are now. Um I I think that they're going to be a good ball club for a long time.
1: Uh you know, Mike, it does seem like that could be what is what we're seeing unfold uh in a short period in in just an off-season of a different mindset. But obviously that's not perfect. Uh but you know, and and now uh, Rich, I'm not sure if you're seeing some of this other stuff and I'm I I it's basically like they're trying to get the opt out out of the Dodgers. That that is basically what I'm seeing right now. When it comes to Bauer to uh, bring it all back around before we go to the uh the, the 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 1972 Mets go a little bit back in time.
0: Well, that that does seem to be an issue, you know, giving a player an opt out. Remember they did that with Cespedes and they, um, when they signed Cespedes for the 2016 season, um, they gave him an opt out and he did opt out. And of course they brought him back in a four-year deal that they <laughs> regret deeply. Um, but there was no way of seeing that coming, I suppose. But yeah, that, that could be the sticking point. You know, you, you, as a team, especially Sandy Alderson, which by the way, I agree with a lot of what you said, Eric, on that, um, but especially Sandy, who likes to look out, you know, and, and he talks about sustainable winning. You kind of want to know what your team's going to look like, you know, and not just next year, but have a plan for the couple of years out. When you start giving guys opt-outs, especially a guy who would be your number two starter, probably, it's a pretty big deal. And, you know, and, and giving players opt-outs, eh, it probably is something that, that they're a little hesitant about and it probably will come down to the Mets and the Dodgers. You know, maybe that's the issue. You know, maybe he wants the opt out, and the Do- one team is going to give it, the other isn't, or that kind of thing. But um, but that it's probably down to those final details now. Sure.
1: Yeah, and uh, without further ado, let's bring the modern era to a close for the seventy second edition of the podcast, and, and let's go right into the nineteen seventy two Mets. Um, Eric, I'm going to start with you, considering you interviewed a lot of those players, not only about Gil Hodges, but who were also on the 1972 Mets. Um, this was a trying year for this team. Uh, you had Gil Hodges death at at spring training. Uh, you had Willie Mays coming to the Mets and you had Yogi Berra taking over for uh, somebody you just don't want to take over for.
2: Well yeah and you know the players all thought that Whitey Herzog was going to get the job um but I guess it was decided that Yogi was the safe choice you know he he came from the same era as Gil Hodges and um you know obviously a Hall of Famer uh by that point and Gil Hodges you know should be in the Hall of Fame um but the thinking was that Whitey Herzog, who really ran um, the whole Mets system in the minor leagues, uh, that he was the guy that he he knew the talent that they had come, coming up, guys like John madlack and and John, John Milner and and play players like that. Uh, but they gave it to Yogi. Um, but yeah, it was a a trying year because uh, the Mets were an awfully good team. Um, coming into the 72 season. And, you know, Gil, um, I think he was 47 years old. He was a, a day or two shy of his 48th birthday. And, um, you know, he was a, a big smoker and um, he died of a heart attack while he was with his coaches after a round of golf. Um, I, so you mentioned, yeah, I, you know, I, been around a lot of the guys from the 69 team that ended up playing on the 72 team and, and, and onwards. And um, I mean, the reverence that they felt towards Gil Hodges was unbelievable. Uh, You know, when, when I went out to the vineyard um, to see Tom Seaver and, you know, I had Tom um, at the bottom of the hill and we were talking um, about his career, I would say at least half of that time he was talking about Gil and the impact that he had on, on him, not just as a manager, but as a father figure um, and how much he learned from Gil. And I mean, he positively adored and respected Gil. Uh, I, I would venture to say as much as anybody else in Tom Seaver's life. And the other guys, you know, they felt similar. Um, they were all kind of afraid of him in a way. You know, he was a former Marine and, you know, he had fought in the war and um, and they didn't like getting called into his office. Uh, it, it's, it's not that he was a shouter, but he was just such a strong presence. And, you know, these guys were just kids. You know, they were in their early 20s for the most part and there was just this intimidation factor. And they all said to me, yeah, nobody wanted to get called into Gill's office or even walk by his office. If the door were open, Um, you know, it's, he he just commanded that, that kind of respect, almost like a drill master. Um, So um, yeah. So the, the 72 team, uh, uh, they had a so-so year and, but then they, they came back, of course, the next year and went to the World Series with a team. Uh, I think they won 82 games, 82 and 7, or 83 and 79, I think it was, and um, uh, beat a much better Reds team and took a, a better Reds, a better A's team to a seventh game. Um, but that was actually around the time I started watching baseball, and uh, uh, that that 73 team was. A team that uh, so many Mets fans of a certain age just treasure, and you know Willie Mays was my favorite player, um, just just because of 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 his career and and um, uh, the admiration that he positively demanded. Um, I mean, it was you know I knew as a seven year old in 1973 that I was watching a legend. The same, way, the, the same way the previous generations, you know, viewed Joe DiMaggio or Babe Ruth. Um, so, um, yeah, that's a year that doesn't really get
1: talked about much, but a lot went on. Mike, you know, just looking at it, there's there's a couple places I want to go here. Um, and it's basically Jim Fergusi and John Matlack. That's That's basically where I want to go with the 1972 conversation, because when you look at it, John Matlack on paper, according to baseball reference uh, from a war standpoint was more valuable than the franchise Tom Seaver this year.
3: It was an incredible season by John Matlack. The first of several good pitcher, underrated, uh, one of the most underrated Met pitchers ever, I think. Doesn't get spoken about enough. Uh, 22 years old. Uh, they were horses back then. He threw 244 innings uh, and, and posted a 2.32 ERA. Uh, that's good stuff, man. That's good stuff. And, and when you can put out a starting rotation uh, that includes Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, and John Matlock. Now, there's a formidable three. Uh, And you brought up Jim Fragoso, you know, revisionist history, we like to think that Nolan Ryan could have been that, you know, big three or a fearsome four. Imagine Sieber, Nolan Ryan, Kuzman, and John Matlock together in those years. That would have been something else. Uh, But John Matlock was impressive. Uh, Nolan Ryan we spoke about him Over the previous two podcasts Or or three or so uh, Or at least in the ones that we delved Into Mets history You know 1970 1971 Nolan Ryan really wasn't uh, Separating himself From the crowd His bases on balls were through the roof Uh, And You might even say he took a step backwards thought they were filling a need by bringing in Fergosi, We know how miserably that turned out. Uh, And it's just one of those things, uh, one of those all-time things in in baseball history. Uh, One of those trades, Nolan Ryan, Nolan Ryan. Imagine trading Nolan Ryan. We say that today in 2021, (laughs) But but in 1971 and 1972, we know or we can argue and debate that the Mets had just cause perhaps maybe now I will add to that, Eric, you brought up Whitey Herzog, you know, and with the passing away of Gil Hodges, this put the Mets in a real dilemma because we're a couple of years after the departure of Bing Divine, Whitey Herzog was there. And we know he didn't like M Donald Grant. Uh, so, with Gil Hodges passing, who were we going to pass the torch to. Uh, whereas just mentioned two names that they would have been great persons to hand off the torch to and, and move the franchise forward. But we made Yogi Berra manager. And we think of him as this, you know, lovable person, which he is without a doubt. Back in the day in, Tommy Agee, Tom Seaver, even Willie Mays, Sam, and we're bringing him up. He's topical in this year. Even Willie Mays, they were not big proponents of Yogi Berra as manager.
1: Uh, Rich, if you want to pick up from Willie Mays and wherever else you want to go with, uh, especially the two other things I just talked about as well.
0: Well, you know, in looking at seventy two, um, that's really the first season that I remember as a fan, right? And I remember the passing of Gil Hodges and um asking a lot of questions, you know, what what does that mean, you know, and who will who will take over and all that and Yogi taking over. But the one thing that kind of pops out that we haven't talked about seventy two is eighty three and seventy three. And you might say to yourself, hmm, that doesn't add up to 162, does it? Well, if you remember, uh, that was the year that there was a strike uh, at the end of spring training. And it went, I believe, two plus weeks into the season. Um, and so the season was delayed in starting. And in the 72 season, they did not make the games up, and teams played a different number of games. So the Mets, you know, if you do the math, 156. Um, other teams played, you know, 154, 155, you know, that kind of thing. So it was a very odd year for baseball in the sense that it was the first time that a labor dispute impacted the schedule and not just, you know, cut the number of games, but teams played a different number of games. And I think it was just because they didn't know how to deal with it. You know, it was the first labor action that caused a, a, a disruption and, Nobody thought or, you know, if anybody has historical perspective, please let me know. But I'm guessing that nobody thought to say, all right, well, let's start the season on for everybody on, you know, I don't know what it was, April 25th and everybody plays 154. It's kind of weird that teams play different numbers of games. But anyway, um, that um that's my first thought on 72. And then. You know, when you look at look at the team, he, you, the thing about 72 that, that also stands out is Rusty Staub is in my top three all-time favorite Mets, and that was his first year as a Met. Um, he only played in 66 games. He, I don't remember why, but he was injured for, obviously, most of that season. Uh, so they got Rusty Staub, and that was great, but then he ended up spending most of the season on the disabled list. If you look at the offensive numbers, you know, they're they're so pedestrian, it's crazy um you look at Cleon Jones at 245 you know after he hit 340 and 69 Cleon Jones 245 Tommy AG 227 uh, you know these are the guys that you expected to um you know buddy Harrelson at 215. so the Mets were just you know devoid of any kind of offense it was the emergence of John Matlack as you talked about it was the Willie Mays trade which I believe was in May of that season you know bringing back to New York which was all good so you know you had a few th- positive things like matlack and Mays, um but but you just you know the, the team had no offense whatsoever uh siever of course had a great year 21 and 12 but um yeah i mean 72 you know the mets were kind of what they were you know they were always a pitching team in that era and not a lot of offense but in this particular season the offense was just non-existent and uh you know like we said matlack Mays, and then I just also wanted to point out that um, the teams played an odd number of games; they didn't all play the same number of games.
1: Now, that's so interesting. And uh, before we wrap it up with that, uh, I, I just want to ask Mike if he has any any thought on that.
3: No, no, I'm not going to add much.
1: All right. Uh, no, I just uh, for some, I, I you're you know just the way we've talked about the Dodgers winning in both 1981 and this. I I thought maybe uh, you might uh, chime in with that. But um, without further ado, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to number 72. And and what's really interesting is Carlos Torres, for the uniform number, uh, took this over when number 52, Joanna Cespedes, came in 2015. We also have Philip Evans, Jack Reinheimer, and Steven Nogasek. As we get deeper into these podcasts, Until we loop back around to 101, uh, we don't have many uniform numbers to talk about here, uh, but we greatly appreciate everybody out there listening to a Metsian podcast. And uh, it's always a fun time, one way or another, talking about modern times as well as the history of Mets baseball. And without further ado, we come to our last word. This is how we usually finish the podcast. And I'm going to first pass it over to Eric for his last word. First of all, Eric... Uh, Eric Sherman, author, uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, uh, give uh, both your last word on uh, the current Mets situation as well as your shameless plug.
2: <laughs> well, uh, it was a pleasure being on tonight. Thank you, and hope we can do it again. I I would say that um, this is about the most optimistic um, I have seen things with the Mets, in three decades, truly, and you know, they had obviously some, you know, some good days um, around you know 2006 and 2007, and uh, and then in 2015. But there's just something. I mean, everything's changed. You know, the the whole feel, the dynamic, the attitude, and I think it it starts with Steve Cohen. And, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I just think that Mets fans know that, that if they're close and if they're in the race, that they're going to go for it, you know, that they're going to have the support of ownership and management. And um, the Mets are in a great, great place right now. And, and for my plug, um, two sides of glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox, in their own words, um it is available for pre-sale now on amazon or wherever books are sold and uh you'll get your book on april 1st um my website it's ericshermanbaseball.com it's eric with a k and you can follow me on twitter at at by eric sherman um uh, and uh that's about it for me so thanks again
1: Eric, thank you again. Uh, We greatly appreciate it. And I'm going to go over to Rich Spirago for his last word. My last word is disappointed,
0: Sam. I'm disappointed in Major League Baseball for where we are right now. You know, if you want to play a full season, that's fine. Just do it. Just stop with this nonsense and just say, this is what we're doing. We'll manage it. You know, we'll take the COVID risk, all that. If you want to push season back, do that. Uh, DH, yes or no, figure it out. I'm just disappointed that, you know, my favorite sport routinely embarrasses itself and it's doing it again. And it just, it, to me, as much as I love the game and can't wait for the Mets and yes, I'm I'm pumped and excited too, but I, it's just disappointing that the sport constantly tries
3: to shoot itself in the foot. And that's where I am.
1: I can't agree with you more, Mike.
3: I'm in lockstep with Rich. Uh, therefore I will say I'm still gripped by the Caribbean series. Uh, I enjoy it every year. I'm watching Robinson Cano. I'm watching Mets Farm product, John eschwee I'm watching Melky Cabrera. I'm watching a lot of people. Uh, winter baseball. I'm a man of seasons. By the way, today was truck day, so at least something happened on schedule. Uh, I applaud the truck. It's on the way to Port St. Lucie. Whether the season starts on schedule or not remains to be seen.
1: I hear that, and it's always nice uh, when that truck starts to head down in early February, and we can't wait for spring training to get started, however they need to get this done. Uh, I want to thank you all out there for listening to a Metsian podcast, and once more, thanks to our guest, author Eric Sherman, and uh, we bid you to join us next time. Farewell, and the only other way to end it is let's go Mets. Take care, everybody. Good night, That's thanks Eric. Good night. All.